Fitz on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou. My co-host, Michelle Witte, is on vacation today. Get ready to go against the grain. And welcome back on this Thursday. You know, Thursdays are normally a busy day. Uh, I was worried as I was writing the script or began writing the script last night that there wouldn't be a whole lot to talk about today. And as it turns out, there's a lot to talk about today, like there is every day. Uh, I want to begin with an absolutely fascinating op-ed in the Washington Post today. It's written by David Jolly, uh, Christine Todd Whitman, and Andrew Yang. David Jolly's a former Republican congressman from Florida. Uh, Christine Todd Whitman is the former Republican governor of New Jersey. And Andrew Yang, of course, is a former Democratic presidential candidate. And what they've done, they each have these different little movements. David Jolly had something called the Serve America Movement. Christine Todd Whitman is the co-founder of the Renew America Movement. And uh, Andrew Yang is the co-chairman of something called the Forward Party. They've decided to pool their resources um, together. They've decided to work together to come up with something akin to a, a political platform, and they've decided to create a new political party called the Forward Party. Um, this is interesting to me, and it's actually troubling at the same time. First of all, we've said on this show a hundred times, this country needs viable third parties. We've got the Greens. They usually get around 1% or just under 1%. We have the libertarians. They usually get between 1% and 2%. And every once in a while, another uh, party will pop up, or an independent candidate will pop up and get a couple of percentage points. It almost never matters, unless you're you know, Ralph Nader in the 2000 presidential campaign. But this forward party uh, is something that they believe uh, can become an ongoing concern. The problem that I have with it is, and you'll see this in this uh, Washington Post uh, op-ed piece, is that this is being marketed as the moderate party, right? With the implication being that the Democratic Party is a left-wing party. It's not. In the global scheme of things, it's a center-right party. Now, there are a couple of people let's say, members of the squad, for example, or Democratic Socialists of America who identify as members of the Democratic Party, who can be considered left-wing in the U.S. context. I'm, I'm still not sure I would call them left-wing, but, but in the U.S. context. And um, this new party is supposed to be a place where everybody else can go. So what they say here, is political extremism, an overused word, is ripping our nation apart, and the two major parties had failed to remedy the crisis. True. Last week, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack at the Capitol led us to relive one of the darkest days in U.S. history. The chilling culmination of an attempted electoral coup in the United States was the strongest evidence yet that we're facing the potential demise of our democracy. All right, that's pushing it. But okay, I get where you're going with this. Says in the past two years, we've seen death threats and assassination plots against members of Congress, governors, Supreme Court justices, even the vice president of the United States. 
Well, guess what? In American history, that's actually not so unusual. You know, there were assassination attempts against Franklin Roosevelt, against Harry Truman. There was a successful one against John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King. We've forgotten already that uh, George Wallace was shot and, uh, and paralyzed in 1968. So it's not like this is something new that nobody's ever tried to kill a politician before. They go on to say that if nothing is done, the United States will not reach its 300th birthday this century in recognizable form. That's why we are coming together, Democrats, Republicans, and Independents, to build a new, unifying political party for the majority of Americans who want to move past divisiveness and reject extremism. I'm going to interrupt myself here and tell you that my very best friend in the world and I got together. We've been best friends since we were little kids. Got together recently. Got to talking about politics. He tends to be a Republican. Um, I'm clearly not. And he said something to me about the radical leftist agenda. Those were the words that he used. And I said, let me ask you, what exactly is radical about it? And he said, well, you know, all of it. And I said, no, 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 I don't know, actually. What in your mind is radical about the Democratic Party's agenda? And he said, well, this whole Green New Deal is radical. And I said, okay, let's talk about that. What in the Green New Deal is so radical to you? Of course, he had never read Green New Deal. And I said, listen, man, just because Tucker Carlson tells you it's radical or Hannity doesn't mean it's radical. They're counting on you to not do your homework. So, you know, if we're going to call anything radical, let's call the right wing radical. Actually, I mean, the proper term is reactionary for the right and radical for the left. But the thing is, is we keep labeling each other with these incorrect and inappropriate labels, and it tends to foster this sense of extremism. Anyway, it goes on in this op-ed to say that Americans have lost faith in government. That's clearly true. Nearly 8 in 10 say the country is headed in the wrong direction, according to a recent survey. And two-thirds of voters think neither the Democrats nor the Republicans have the right priorities. Shockingly, roughly 30 million Americans believe that violence against the current government is justified. The same number want to forcibly return former President Donald Trump to the White House. Well, I blame Donald Trump for all that. He's the one that's been lying about the election having been stolen from him. This is what happens when democracies fail. People feel their voices are not heard, and they radicalize to take up arms, leading to mainstream talk about civil war. How do you remedy such a crisis? In a system torn apart by two increasingly divided extremes— you must reintroduce choice and competition. The United States badly needs a new political party, one that reflects the moderate common sense majority. Today's outdated parties have failed by catering to the fringes. As a result, most Americans feel that they are not represented. I would add something that for the first time in American history, more than 50% of Americans identify as independents. I think that's a fascinating statistic. As leaders and former elected officials, we're tired of just talking about a third way. So this month, we are merging our three national organizations, which represent the left, the right, and the center of the political spectrum to launch 
the launch or to build the launch pad for a new political party called the Forward Party. The two major parties have hollowed out the sensible center of our political system, even though that's where most voters want to see them move. A new party must stake out the space in between. On every issue facing this nation, from the controversial to the mundane, we must find a reasonable approach most Americans can agree on. For example, on guns. Most Americans don't agree with calls from the far left to confiscate all guns and repeal the Second Amendment. Tell you the truth, I've actually never heard anybody say that. On the right, they're also rightfully worried by the far right's insistence on eliminating gun laws. On climate change, most Americans don't agree with calls from the far left to completely upend our economy and way of life, but they also reject the far right's denial that there is even a problem. On abortion, most Americans don't agree with the far left's extreme views on late-term abortions. That's nonsense. But they are also alarmed by the far right's quest to make a woman's choice a criminal offense. To succeed, a new party must break down the barriers that stand between voters and more political choices. Accordingly, we will passionately advocate electoral changes such as ranked choice voting and open primaries. We will urge for the end of gerrymandering and for the nationwide protection of voting rights and a push to make voting remarkably easy for anyone and incredibly secure for everyone. Without such systemic changes, Americans will be left with a closed system and fewer options on the ballot. These reforms go hand in hand with a new party. Well, you know what? Good luck to them. Uh, I hope they're successful. I've mentioned a couple times on the show that in the 19th century, we had a plethora of parties, all different kinds of parties, and they came and they went. And if you didn't like your party and you didn't really want to jump to the opposition party, you just created your own party. We saw it all the time. We've had people run for president in one party and then later in their careers switch to a different party. We've had members of the Supreme Court switch parties in the 19th century. So I think new parties, especially if they're financed, are a great idea. So let's wish them luck. Alrighty. In other news, and there is other news, we're going to talk about this at length later in the show, but Joe Manchin had a change of heart last night, and he announced at about five o'clock yesterday afternoon that he and Majority Leader Chuck Schumer have come to an agreement on a climate change bill. And it's not just climate change. It's also a bill that would allow Medicaid to negotiate for lower drug prices. It would also put $300 billion against the federal deficit, and do a whole bunch of other things. Like I say, we're going to talk about that in, in some uh, detail. The Republicans are apoplectic. But uh, I'll note when we, when we speak to Jim Cavanaugh about this later in the show that uh, it's, it's not a done deal yet. Uh, it has to pass the House, and it has to get the approval of the Senate parliamentarian. There's a rule in the Senate that a bill to pass into law um, has to achieve 60 votes to invoke cloture. That is to end debate. 60 votes ends whatever filibuster there might be or that might be threatened. Unless it has to do with a budget. You can't filibuster the budget. You need just 51 votes. And so the Democrats are saying that this climate change bill is actually a part of the budget because it's a $369 billion 
bill. It has to be appropriated. And so it's officially a part of the budget. We'll see if the Senate parliamentarian agrees with that. Uh, Listen, if you haven't uh, heard the news about the Mega Millions lotto, you ought to listen to this. It's up to $1.1 billion right now. You know, I I went to the 7-Eleven this morning to get this this mother's milk here called uh, Diet Pepsi. And uh, I had to actually wait in line because so many people were buying lottery tickets. $1.1 billion. Of course, you're like 16 times more likely to be struck by lightning. But I'll admit, I bought five tickets. One other thing I wanted to talk about was uh, the the prime minister uh, of uh, Hungary, Viktor Orban. Is he the prime minister or is he the president? I'm going to look. He's the prime minister. Viktor Orban is a fascist. Let's just call a spade a spade here. The guy's a fascist. Uh, not a not a not a neo-Nazi kind of, you know, put them in camps kind of fascist, but but he's a racist, he's a bigot, and he just does not like it when people from other countries try to enter Hungary for the purpose of finding work or establishing a domicile. Um, he's also a darling of the of the Republican Party here, and he's been invited for the second time to speak at the uh, CPAC, at the Conservative Political Action uh, Conference that's going to be held next week in Dallas, Texas. Well, Viktor Orban um, is facing a backlash today. Uh, for saying in a speech that Europeans, quote, should not become peoples of mixed race. He's just against that. Uh, He doesn't like anybody who's not ethnically Hungarian to be in Hungary. So if you're coming from Pakistan, Afghanistan, Kurdistan, you're coming from Nigeria, Cameroon, Mali, Mauritania, you're not welcome in Hungary. At least not as long as Viktor Orban is the prime minister. And the shame is he's a popular one. Uh, the uh, chief rabbi of Hungary is worried about this. He wrote Orban a letter saying, you know, we've noted your speech, but where do the Jews fit into, uh, into your plan for Hungary? Uh, I think this is actually a bigger deal than the media uh, want us to believe right now. This is going to be a problem. Uh, Hungary is a member of NATO. Hungary is a member of the European Union, and uh, the Europeans are going to have to decide what kind of a, a, a continent they want when the leader of one of their larger countries is using language that would uh, probably please the Nazis. We are going to talk about that and a lot more stuff uh, over the course of the rest of the show. We have Wyatt Reed today. We have Juan Jose Gutierrez, Jim Cavanaugh, and Paul Wright. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned, and we'll be back with our first guest. Politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, and my co-host Michelle Witte is on vacation. I hope she's having a good time. 
There have been several developments in the so-called war on drugs over the past several weeks that haven't had much of a focus in the mainstream media. Mexican authorities, for example, captured fugitive drug lord Rafael Caro Quintero, a top target of the DEA and the FBI, who was allegedly involved in the capture, torture, and execution of DEA agent Kiki Camarena in the 1980s. It was Camarena's death that led to an expansive law during the Reagan administration that deemed any crime against an American anywhere in the world to be a crime in the United States, and the perpetrators could be prosecuted in the United States. Thus began cross-border kidnappings. The bigger story here, though, is the CIA's historic role in Latin American drug trafficking. There have always been rumors that the CIA trafficked drugs to the United States in the 1980s, and those drugs kicked off the crack epidemic in the early 80s. The truth isn't quite that clear-cut, but we'll discuss this and more with our first guest. We're now joined by Sputnik News correspondent Wyatt Reed. Welcome back, Wyatt. Hey, John. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Wyatt, so glad to have you because you're one of the few people that I know who really is an expert on uh, on these issues. Uh, some of them tend to be a little bit down in the weeds, but I think they're incredibly important. So let's talk first about Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, also known as AMLO. AMLO has had some serious law enforcement victories recently, especially with the arrest of Rafael Caro Quintero being a, a crown jewel. Why is this arrest so important in the greater scheme of things? Usually when a drug lord is arrested, another one just takes his place. But this one seems to be different. Why is that? Yeah, that's right, John. And as you noted, it, it is different, although Rafael Caro Quintero is pretty long out of the drug game, right. at least as far as, as most analysts are concerned. He wasn't running the shots at, at anywhere particularly important these days. Uh, but he's particularly important because he kind of represents uh, what I would refer to as the nexus between the CIA and regime change and the drug money flow, uh, organized crime internationally, and uh basically the the Iran Contra scandal. Uh, he's really kind of at the at the at the central sort of point meeting point of all of these different phenomenons. Um, and to tell his story is to really kind of tell the story of uh, US foreign policy, especially with regard to Latin America in the 80s, but really going back uh, to the 50s to the beginning of of uh, the CIA-backed efforts to overthrow a, a serious number of Latin American governments. Mm -hmm. um, we find that uh, that Quintero is is basically the head of the Guadalajara cartel right. in the eighties, and this is when uh, the Guadalajara cartel is being effectively used to launder drugs, money, and weapons on their way uh, back and forth from from Nicaragua, where. Uh, obviously, the U.S. was backing this dirty war against the Nicaraguan government, uh, and they were doing that, especially after Reagan was cut off mm -hmm. uh, in Congress mm -hmm. uh, from funding, from continuing to fund the Contras. Uh, they did that through these, uh, through the Guadalajara cartel and through these drug and weapons shipments, and they were uh, being uh, routed out of kind of a, a hub within Mexico run by the Guadalajara cartel. Mm. Uh, and there's really an excellent, you know, for, for listeners who have access to Amazon, 
there's really an incredible program that I have no idea how it got made called the last narc that, Oh, it's brilliant. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's narrated by the DEA agent who was put in charge of the investigation of Kiki Camarena's uh, disappearance. And as we know, know his torture and subsequent execution. And he finds effectively a massive conspiracy going to the highest levels of the U S government uh, and the CIA to silence uh, Kiki Camarena, who stumbled upon this nexus, as I described it, and uh, to basically eliminate him, prevent him from telling the truth about U.S. foreign policy there um, and about these connections between the CIA, uh, supposedly between CIA agent Felix Rodriguez, who was mm -hmm. uh, apparently one of the people witnessed uh, and even participated in this brutal torture and execution of Kiki Camarena. Uh, he never paid for his crimes, of course. No. Uh, many observers would attribute this to his close associations with the CIA. Frankly, uh, John, I'm sure you have a bit to share on this as well. I'm, I'm sure you have some insights as well. Yeah, I wanted to. I, I'm glad you brought this up because I think this is a really important uh, issue. I don't know if you or our our listeners and viewers have watched the uh, the series Narcos. On, uh, I guess it's on Netflix. Is it? It's either Netflix or Amazon. One or the other. Yeah. Narcos. Netflix. Netflix. Brilliant, wonderful uh, series. And there's a theme through the course of this series where the DEA is like just on the verge of catching some major drug lord, and it goes bad, and then the CIA station chief shows up. All of that is true, because the DEA. And the CIA were constantly at loggerheads. The DEA was trying to stop the flow of drugs to the United States. They were trying to wrap up these, these drug lords. And the CIA was carrying out its obsession with communism. So in places like Colombia, for example, or even Venezuela or elsewhere in, in South America uh, in, the, in the 80s and Central America in the 70s, uh, you had the CIA actively working against DEA. The CIA didn't care about drugs entering the United States and in many cases helped to facilitate the movement of drugs in, into the United States just so long as they could hit the communists. This, this obsession with communism doesn't make any sense to us now, all these years later, but it set the country back and did damage to our to our cities. Uh, and I think it's, it's a story that hasn't been fully told. I'm glad now that we're, you know, that we have shows like Narcos or, uh, the, uh, these documentaries or even the film, um, kill the messenger. I'm proud to say I was a script consultant on kill the messenger. Uh, those stories oh, wow. need to be told. Uh, because this is a dark period of American history. And one of the things that I've always maintained is that the American people own this information, right? These guys work for the American taxpayer. And so we have a right to know what our government is doing in our name, uh, including when they're breaking the law. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's a real shame that we have to go to programs like, you know, The Last Snark, Kill the Messenger. Um, and unfortunately, it seems this inevitably happens where we only get to find out 30 or 40 years later, you know, the real truth of what happened. 
Um, but it's important to to know that truth and to map it out against sort of a history of, you know, a rogue agency that basically funds a number of, of black ops activities this way. Historically, when we look at Vietnam, uh, you, we know that Air America flights were being used to uh, to funnel heroin from Vietnam, you know, uh, and and basically you know, the, the linkages between these uh, drug epidemics that we seem to have every other decade uh, and which part of the world we're, fa- we're, you know, engaged in major conflict. That's not an accident yeah. to me at this point. You know, we've seen it happen so many different places, uh, so many different countries. We know, for example, that the Taliban had succeeded actually in uh, decimating opium production the year prior to the invasion. And then after 2001, you see opium production in Afghanistan skyrocket to levels never before seen. Yeah, indeed. Uh, let me ask you one more question about uh, Caro Quintero. Is the plan that he'll be extradited to the United States? The former head of um, international operations for DEA told a Spanish newspaper yesterday that Caro Quintero was arrested by the Mexican Navy, but based on DEA intelligence. So what's the plan with him? Yeah, well, that's actually that that particular attempt to take credit for the arrest of Prado Quintero seemed to not go over terribly well in Mexico City. Actually, the ambassador of the United States uh, in Mexico, Ken Salazar, was forced to go on the record and clarify. He said, to clarify, no United States personnel participated in the tactical operation that resulted in the arrest of Caro Quintero. The arrest of Caro Quintero was carried out exclusively by the Mexican government. That's it. So you can see there was there was certainly uh, a little bit of, of frustration, I think, from the Mexican side that the gringos seemed all too willing to take credit mm-hmm. for this immediately after. But in terms of the plan for Caro Quintero, I think it's not quite clear yet whether or not the, you know, at what rate this attempt to extradite him to the United States is going to take place. We've seen already uh, over the past days a number of moves by judges in Mexico, uh, at least one injunction. And now there's, I believe, yesterday a new petition for protection was filed by Caro Quintero's lawyer. Uh, So we see for now he's kind of strung up in Mexican courts, and it's Mm -hmm. not at all clear how long that's going to take. Uh, But it does seem that, you know, long term, he's headed for prison in the United States. Yeah. Another uh, thing that seems to have been moving quickly, especially over the last few days, has to do with Honduras. Honduras yesterday extradited to the United States a woman by the name of Erlinda Bobdia or Chinda, she goes by, who's alleged to be the leader of a major drug cartel uh, there in Honduras. She was extradited with two of her sons. A third son was killed in a shootout with police. A fourth escaped. And a fifth is serving a 37-year prison sentence here in the U.S. Is this all a coincidence? And when I say all, I mean uh, Caro Quintera um, and and this uh, Erlinda Bobadilla. Is this all a coincidence or is the Biden administration doing something different that's resulting in the demise of these these drug figures? Right. It's always tough to say, especially right when this happens, what exactly happened or didn't happen Mm -hmm. behind the scenes. Um, You'll see a lot of analysts pointing to the fact that Caro Quintero's arrest took place 
just three days after AMLO's meeting with Joe Biden as, as an indication that perhaps there was some kind of deal made right. uh, or, or rather, uh, you know, this was put on the front burner as a result of some some kind of discussion that was held behind closed doors. Uh, I'm not totally clear what the situation in Honduras right now is. Obviously, uh, there has been pretty extensive collaboration, especially uh, in the anti-drug field between the new administration of Xiomara Castro and the United States government, uh, most notably with the extradition of former Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez, uh, who was extradited a few months ago, uh, following his uh, his uh, the failure of his party to keep power there in Honduras, um, but I, I should note that that in with the case of Honduras, uh, a lot of these narcos have really kind of been ticking off U.S. authorities over the past few years, uh -huh. especially in the case of Juan Orlando Hernandez, who kind of bragged, uh, at least according to a number of of, of sources bragged about the quantities of cocaine that he could jam up the gringos' noses. Um, so this is somebody who I, I think the higher levels of the U.S. government, there was a sense that, you know, okay, this guy may have played his role for a while. He was useful in terms of overthrowing Zelaya, um, you know, in 2009, or rather his party was, mm -hmm. but now they've overstayed their welcome. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the tail cannot wag the dog. Yeah, in fact, it, it He's the one, is he not, who's who's been arrested and extradited to the United States uh, a couple of months ago? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He's going to stand trial in New York on drug trafficking charges, and his wife is also being charged uh, in New York. I don't recall ever seeing this kind of cooperation on drug crimes and extraditions at this high level uh, in my life. Uh, is, is this because he got uh, a little too too big for himself and and was bragging about the the amounts of cocaine that that he was uh, responsible for shipping to the United States? I mean, it's not usual that we go after the president of a country and charge him with these drug trafficking crimes, is it? Certainly not typical. I can't think of any other instance of this really since you know Noriega. Yeah, Noriega. That's exactly what I was thinking. But, you know, it's it's really it's kind of tough to say exactly what the calculus here is, um, because everybody kind of has leverage. Everybody has cards that they know they can play. Um, people have played them in public, you know, especially I mean, we're talking about a region that now is increasingly able to choose between East and West in a way that it really hasn't been able to do. Uh, you know, it's kind of all been under the domain of the U.S., at least since that, you know, the 90s, and with the exception, I would say, of Cuba, obviously. But, uh, you know, the U.S. obviously isn't going to let this go mm -hmm. easily. It's a region that it's, it's uh, long considered its backyard, that Monroe Doctrine is definitely something that we see coming out of the oh, yeah. U.S. government to this day. Oh, yes. And, um, you know, I, I think that the question really isn't, you know, are they really serious about cracking down on drug cartels or are they really serious about dragging down on particular drug cartels that uh, may pose more of an obstacle that maybe aren't willing to to uh, participate in some of these, you know, drug for money kind of schemes that I think we we know uh, go on to this day uh, in many parts of the world. Uh, exactly what the nature of any of these kinds of, of particular high level arrests 
you know, I think we have to wait until 20 or 30 years until, you know, somehow somebody at Amazon accidentally lets them tell the truth. Um, tell me a little bit about what's happening in Colombia. Colombia just uh, elected its uh, it, its first truly leftist president. And uh, the U.S. has had such a long, close, cooperative relationship with a succession of right-wing Colombian presidents. Uh, what does that mean for continued cooperation on, uh, on drug interdiction there? Well, it means that you have opposing policies, really, that are going to come uh, to head here, especially under the Trump administration. They were really urging Colombia to ramp up uh, glyphosate raids, basically dousing, you know, miles and miles and miles in yeah, uh, terrible, you know, deadly, deadly poison yeah. uh, that obviously had terrible effects for the rest of the vegetation and for the people who tended to it, uh, not just, you know, the coca plants that were targeted. Um, this is something that the incoming administration has described as totally unacceptable. Uh, they've just they've talked about opening up uh, relations again with Venezuela and about opening back up the border. That seems to be something that is now confirmed, slated to happen uh, as soon as uh, Petro takes office. Uh, you really have kind of a whole reanalysis of the dynamics at play that allow uh, that allow for uh, Colombia to be in the position that it is in terms of both. Uh, this kind of cocaine uh, capital and in terms of kind of the U.S. sort of capital in the region. Uh, both of these are are issues on which Petro campaigned heavily to put a stop to. Um, and there's a great deal of public pressure mm -hmm. behind him to honor those pledges. Uh, so I think it says quite a bit, um, you know, as, as well, when, when we're talking about the foreign policy, that you're having some of the first conversations being held with Maduro. Now the vice president, incoming vice president, Francia Marquez, is on a regional tour. Her first visit uh, is with former Brazilian president Lula da Silva. Uh, you can, I think, see a message here, which is that, you know, we're not going to stop cooperation with the United States, but we know who our friends are, and we're certainly going not going to forget mm -hmm. them. I want to also ask you, uh, Wyatt, about Julian Assange. We're we're all on watch of course, waiting for a final decision on whether Julian is going to be extradited to the United States. His case is now before the European Court of Human Rights, and uh, the British haven't uh, yet set an extradition date. Um, in the meantime, there's a real movement in Australia now, finally, after all these years, and to a lesser extent here in the United States, to, uh, to release him. AMLO, in the meantime, has offered Julian Assange asylum in Mexico. So my question to you is, what is public opinion in Mexico like on Assange? And do you think there's any real chance that he might be able to gain asylum there? Yeah, well, in terms of of public opinion on Assange, I think I think he represents kind of an ideal that that AMLO is taking Mexico back to for a long time. Uh, it had this policy of political neutrality, mm -hmm. not necessarily getting involved uh, in the Cold War, not taking sides. Um, and so really, you know, it's kind of it's, it's a little bit bigger than just Julian Assange, I think, in terms of the Mexican, the popular Mexican conception. This is real sovereignty. It's a restoration of really going back to having autonomy uh, for Mexican people over 
Mexican affairs. Now, as to whether or not this will ultimately be successful, I think that kind of depends on whether or not other world leaders have the courage to stand up and speak out, as AMLO has, uh, to make this a, an important issue, something that they press with Joe Biden in their personal meetings with him, as uh, AMLO is said to have done. Um, and he's made a number of extremely uh, important public statements, uh, urging, you know, saying that you know, if the U.S. convicts Assange, she's going to campaign to have them tear down the Statue of Liberty uh, because, you know, they <laughs> basically don't deserve it anymore, right. uh, which I think is, frankly, a, a fair point to make. Uh, and it's it's a moral one to make. And it's a shame that we don't hear it being made more often. That was the voice of Wyatt Reed, our friend and correspondent at Sputnik News. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll uh, take another break and come back. Stay tuned. and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou. Last month, the Supreme Court cleared the way for the Biden administration to dismantle a Trump-era policy that has forced thousands of asylum seekers to wait in Mexico, often in dangerous circumstances, for their U.S. court cases to be heard. But having previously moved quickly to end the so-called Remain in Mexico policy, the Biden administration has suddenly decided to move in slow motion. To make matters more puzzling, administration officials will not respond to journalists or to immigration activists who ask what the holdup is. We're joined by Juan Jose Gutierrez. He's an immigration attorney and executive director of the Full Rights for Immigrants Coalition. Juan Jose, it's been a long time. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, John. Thank you for inviting me. So glad to have you back. I want to ask you first, Juan Jose, if you could tell us what this rule is that the Biden administration worked to reverse and why it was so onerous for intending asylum seekers. Well, as you know, John, former President Donald Trump committed to end migration to the U.S., primarily from third world nations, especially from Mexico, Central America and Haiti, uh, while at the same time he promoted migration from Europe and other Anglo-Saxon nations. That is why his administration used every conceivable opportunity to stop Haitians, Central Americans, and Mexicans from entering the U.S. So when the coronavirus hit the world, he took advantage of it and stopped third-world asylum seekers from pursuing their cases in the U.S. through a policy that came to be known as the Remain in Mexico policy. Under this policy, Asylum seekers were and are forced to wait in Mexico while their cases move through our legal immigration. Yeah. Uh, have there been any changes to the standard operating procedure since this Supreme Court decision, or are the Trump era rules still in effect? Well, the answer is no, and the answer is yes uh-huh. uh, to the second part of the question. Uh, to his credit, Mr. Alejandro Mayorkas, the head of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, says that he remains committed to end the Remain in Mexico policy. But today, John, he nor others in the Biden administration have explained to the public or to the activists 
or people interested uh, on the subject, what new standards will be applied mm-hmm. already with political asylum claims before immigration courts and who are still in Mexico and what's going to be the new asylum policy that will be applied to new asylum seekers uh, going forward. So. What are these facilities like on the Mexico side of the border? I I went through some of the previous reporting and looked to see what people were saying about them, and uh, and it's it's bad. They're not they're not exactly prisons, but uh, they're akin to prisons. And even when people aren't being held in these facilities, uh, they're they're in very dangerous places. You know, a lot of these intending uh, asylum seekers are asking for asylum because they're subject to violence in their home countries, places like Honduras and Guatemala, for example. Uh, Well, there's violence in these border cities in Mexico as well, and there is a presence of the same kinds of gangs that have forced a lot of these people to seek asylum in the United States. So are they protected in any way? Are they still in danger as they're in these places for indefinite periods of time? waiting for their cases to be heard? Well, for those that are lucky enough to find a center uh, for asylum seekers on the Mexican side, most of them uh, are safe and are okay. But as you know, John, uh, uh, journalists have persistently documented, you know, the horrible the deplorable conditions under which those that cannot find refuge in Mexico uh, must survive. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think uh, the bottom line is that consistently uh, these immigrants, asylum seekers, you know, have very little economic opportunity because they can't find jobs. Right. So they must fend for themselves. And then, of course, they must face and are constantly in danger of falling victims to kidnapping, assault, rape, and the all-too-common extortion, uh, you know, at the hands of Mexican gangsters. And 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 and, and there have been uh, documented cases where people have lost their lives. So yes, John, uh, you know, if you're on the Mexican side, uh, you know, you, you're in danger, and your life is in danger, and that is why. Uh, we have all been working diligently mm-hmm. uh, to the remaining in Mexico policy. The Biden administration committed to the same goal. Uh, the Supreme Court held in its favor. So it is incomprehensible why, as you mentioned in your introduction, they're moving now in slow motion. So let me let me make sure that I understand this. You're saying that not all of these intending asylum seekers, when they're when they're forced to remain on the Mexican side of the border. Not all of them are placed in facilities to await the hearings of their uh, applications. Are, are they out on the streets? Is Are they fending for themselves against these gangs and and kidnappers and gangsters and, and this uh, street violence? Yes. Oh, my God. Uh, you know, they're pretty much uh, homeless in the United States in the you know in a dangerous environment, they must uh, sleep you know under bridges, in the open, uh, fending for themselves, and that is why they are so prone to all the dangers that uh-huh. I know already: the kidnappings, the assaults, the rapes, 
you know, extortion, which is most common. And this has been amply documented by human rights right. uh, 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 persons. And, 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 you know, and it's still uh, the daily staple uh, of these asylum seekers who are by the thousands still in Mexico. You know, I've been to a couple of these border uh, cities, and one of the things that really strikes you is you see you see flyers or posters with hundreds of different women, pictures of, of hundreds of different women missing, 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 every one of them. Um, and the, the conventional wisdom is many of them had been on their way to the United States, either as asylum seekers or intending immigrants. They were kidnapped and then sold into prostitution, uh, most likely, some of them killed. Uh, you mentioned extortion and kidnapping. A lot of them are snatched, and then their families are contacted to uh, to pay a ransom uh, for their release. In many cases, they're never released. They're probably dead. Is, is this what they're facing uh, over there? That's exactly what they're facing. Jeez. And one other crime that you forgot to mention, which is horrendous is the fact that uh, uh, in Mexico uh, people get kidnapped and their uh, and their organs taken uh, and sold in the black market that's another my god crime that these immigration seekers uh, have to confront on a daily basis and I believe that the Biden administration cannot be complicit uh, with a policy that's making this horrendous uh, reality uh, still be the reality for these asylum seekers. Well, let's talk about that for a minute, Juan Jose. I know that you don't have inside information. You're not an official at the White House. But can you speculate as to what the trouble is uh, surrounding this rule change? If the Supreme Court has already changed the rule and Joe Biden campaigned in part on changing the rule, uh, then what's what's holding things up? Why isn't this being implemented? The answer is politics, John. Mm. With the November elections looming in the horizon, President Biden is under tremendous pressure from conservative Democrats who are in tough re-election campaigns to not do anything that could be perceived as pro-immigrant by conservative or middle-of-the-road voters. Yeah, good point. So I guess one can say President Biden wants to do the right thing and immediately end the remaining Mexico policy. But I think he believes he must proceed with great caution. I do not agree with that approach because ultimately he can alienate significant segments of the Democratic vote right. and make Democrats' fears, fears come through. In other words— uh, by losing Democratic voters that otherwise would be voting Democrat, Republicans that otherwise would not win in these tough races could ultimately get elected. And, and, and that is what has happened in the past. And that's why I think that the approach the Biden administration is taking uh, is wrong. Can you-
Can you tell us, is there anything happening legislatively on Capitol Hill? You know, we go through these cycles, and that's really what it is. It's very cyclical, where immigration is at the top of the agenda, and then they fight over it for a little bit. Usually, it comes to nothing. There might be a policy change rather than a a change in the law, but I haven't heard anything uh, that's pending on Capitol Hill to address these issues. Is there anything, is there something I'm missing? Well, the only thing that's pending in Congress right now and is being held up in the Senate is the expansion of something called the guest worker program. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the old days, the guest worker program uh, became known as the Barcero program. Yes. It was signed into law in 1942. It was negotiated uh, uh, by a titan of American politics, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Mexican president, Avila Camacho, they sat down in Monterrey, Mexico, and signed this agreement to bring Mexican laborers to the United States to basically work in agriculture, mining, and railroads. Uh, uh, the program remained in place through the remaining of World War II and went all the way to 1962, when many people thought that the Bracero program had effectively been ended. In fact, uh, they were wrong. Uh, the, the guest worker program remains, as now known, and it has been expanding over time. Already in the first six months of this year, uh, 254,000 uh, Mexican uh, temporary workers have been brought to the U.S. And when President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador was in Washington, D.C., uh, for a summit with Biden that basically went unnoticed by the mainstream media, uh, he brought a five-point proposal, one of which dealt with immigration. Mm-hmm. He wanted to expand the guest worker program by another uh, 300,000 uh, uh, temporary workers. 150,000 visas would be given to Central Americans from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, and then the other 150,000 uh, to Mexicans from the southeast of Mexico, which is the most uh, uh, poor part of uh, of Mexico. Uh, we don't know where that's going to go, but presently in the Senate, there is a bill to grant residency to people that commit to remain in agriculture by a certain, you know, by a certain, uh, a certain number of years, uh, but it's been frozen in the Senate. Uh. I think it's going to go anywhere. Uh, it could, but I doubt that it will. Uh, you know, you still are going to need the 60 votes and because... yes. Agribusiness is very influential with Republican uh, senators. There are some people that believe that it might go uh, forward uh, unexpectedly. But that's the only thing that's there. Other than that, uh, there's nothing. My own humble opinion is that there is no downside to a bill like that. No downside at all. These are uh, very difficult, labor-intensive jobs that most Americans uh, won't take. You know, I, I read a story the other day. Uh, it was in it was in the uh, Minneapolis newspaper. Uh, it was about um, an asparagus farm. So the owner of this asparagus farm uh, got very sick, serious illness, and couldn't harvest the asparagus. And so the community came together and said, "Let's help save this guy's farm. We're going to harvest the asparagus." And they all worked for a day and they said, screw this. This is too hard. And the guy's farm failed because he was too sick to harvest it. 
Well, that's exactly why we need guest workers, because they take the jobs that Americans won't take. Um, There's no downside. And I think you're right that agribusiness is very, very powerful in Washington, especially within the Republican Party. Uh, They would be the ones to benefit the most from a policy like this. And um, and at the same time, these these guest workers would be paying taxes. So it's it, it's an upside for everybody. I absolutely agree, John. There's no downside. It's a win win situation for everyone concerned. And it's incomprehensible why Republicans will not come to the rescue of some of their strongest constituents mm-hmm. business uh, industry. Uh, but uh, that's the type of situation we're having to deal with in the United States today. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen, but we have been advocating changing the subject a little bit, but on the same line of immigration policy. Uh, when we were in Washington, uh, when President Lopez Obrador was here for his meeting with President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris on the 12th of July, uh, we presented a proposal that understanding that practically it is going to be very difficult under present circumstances in the Senate, mm-hmm. any type of meaningful uh, immigration uh, policy reform through, uh, you know, that there already is a law that exists that offers uh, uh, legal immigration relief to the millions of undocumented immigrants already in the United States. And that is the program of uh, TPS, the temporary status, that was signed into law uh, in the 1990s by President Bush, and the different presidents, uh, you know, have exercised their authority to grant it, you know, to Haitians, to people from Sudan and above 13 other nations, including some Central American nations like Honduras and, and El Salvador. Um, all you need to do is to declare an emergency. Mm-hmm. Emergency. It's never been said that there's a national emergency in the U.S. other than for war. But certainly, you know, we we, we don't have enough uh, uh, labor right now. We need workers in various sectors of the economy. Yes. Important sectors like agriculture, meat processing, you know, uh, pharmaceutical industry, medical, etc. And, and so the president could simply exercise his authority and, and, and declare a national emergency, the coronavirus, you know. Yes. For two years and on and on and on. But he won't do it. I mean, so we don't understand why the caution, why he's proceeding in slow motion all along, claiming, you know, that he's, that, that he's really serious about undertaking a more humane, a more progressive, a more welcoming policy towards uh, immigrants. Those that may be coming in the future or those that are at the border or those that are already in the United States in an undocumented status and have been in that status for close to 40 years. So are we now stuck in an either-or situation where if the Biden administration doesn't implement this change, asylum seekers are just stuck with the Trump-era rules? Well, yes and no. You know, uh, know, uh, President Biden uh, is moving in slow motion because he claims you know, they, you know, they, he swore to uphold the law of the land. Mm-hmm. That's understandable. So, uh, you know, if we uh, broaden uh, the meaning of that uh, situation, 
uh, you know, he must comply with the law, right? And since the United States Supreme Court has said you're, you know, you're okay in getting rid of the uh, or ending, uh, you know, the remaining Mexico policy, mm-hmm. so that places Biden in a situation where he must comply with the rules of asylum, PG mm-hmm. law, and immediately allow uh, asylum seekers to enter the U.S. in order for them to pursue their asylum cases here. You know, that yeah. used to be the accepted norm and was, mm-hmm. you know, you know, standard policy. And I believe we need to immediate, immediately go back to it. And President Biden has the opportunity, the law and the power behind them to do it. So, uh, you know, no more delays. I mean, we have to move forward. Juan Jose Gutierrez, thank you so much for joining us. Juan Jose is an immigration attorney, and he's executive director of the Full Rights for Immigrants Coalition. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. It's the top of the hour, so we'll take a short break and come back. Stay tuned. on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou. There was big news from Capitol Hill last night when Senator Joe Manchin, the conservative Democrat from West Virginia, announced that he was doing a 180 and that he had come to an agreement with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to pass a climate and tax reform bill that he said would help to reduce inflation. Joe Biden is in dire need of his legislative victory something that has largely eluded him over the past year and a half. In other news, the Biden administration has offered to trade convicted arms smuggler Victor Boot to Russia in exchange for Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan. Boot is serving a 25-year prison sentence in a U.S. penitentiary. Griner is currently on trial for bringing cannabis oil into Russia. And Whelan has been imprisoned in Moscow since 2018 on espionage charges. He was involved in corporate security at the time of his arrest. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken will discuss a trade later this week with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov over the objections of Attorney General Merrick Garland. And finally, we told you yesterday that two of former Vice President Mike Pence's top aides have testified before a federal grand jury impaneled to investigate former President Trump's actions on January 6, 2021. Now we're learning that former Trump aide Cassidy Hutchinson is cooperating with the Justice Department's criminal probe into Trump's efforts to subvert the 2020 election. CNN says that this is the most wide-ranging investigation in the history of the Justice Department. We're joined by Jim Cavanaugh. Jim is the editor of thepolemicist.net. Always good to have you, Jim. Thanks for having me. Oh, this is going to be fun. Let's start with this news from uh, Joe Manchin. This is a very big deal, Jim, but with a couple of caveats. First, this bill would invest $369 billion in energy and climate change programs with a goal of reducing carbon emissions by 40% by 2030. It would allow, for the first time, Medicare to negotiate drug prices that Democrats say would save another $288 billion. It would also cap out-of-pocket expenses for Medicaid at $2,000 a year, and it would impose a 15% minimum corporate tax while raising taxes on carried interest 
at the corporate level and raising another 124 billion through IRS tax enforcement. Democrats say that overall the bill would actually reduce the deficit by 300 billion dollars. On the flip side though, the bill would have to pass the House of Representatives. And the other unknown is that the Senate parliamentarian will have to approve the bill going to the floor as part of the budget process. It would then need only 51 votes to pass rather than the 60 votes necessary to invoke cloture. So first, Jim, give me your thoughts on the scope of this bill. Does it cover enough important high dollar issues to actually help Joe Biden politically? Uh, You know, whether it helps Joe Biden politically or not is going to depend on whether it has an immediate effect, which it won't. (laughs) And that's right. uh, Whether it has uh, an effect that can be sold in a way that people will say, oh, that's what I need. Right. Uh, And they they believe it's going to have an effect in at least the medium term that is something that's important to them that, that, that they need. Okay, Mm -hmm. so this is all over the map on a bunch of things, and it's not clear what they what this what the details of it all are. You know, this climate change aspect of it is very ambiguous ambiguous at this point. What exactly the details are? A lot of it, you know, they talk about more credits for tax credits. You know, tax credits for buying electric vehicles. This is not going to be something that that's going to gain a lot of you know, change anybody's mind, change the situation politically in a in a drastic way. And electric vehicles, I hate to say it, but, you know, they're not, and the, the environment is not just carbon. Yeah. And electric yeah. vehicles are not a great environmental thing. You know, but lithium batteries that are used are disastrous mining and, and uh, uh, labor conditions that yeah. under which they're used and they're very expensive. So anyway, the electric, this, this idea of tax credits to solve the environment, you know, is not something that, that ignites people's, uh, you know, political consciousness. Yeah. Now the Medicare aspects of it are things that are more significant to people, you know, negotiating drug prices is, is kind of a basic thing that should have been done a long time ago. Yeah. And they're doing it in the most you know, slow, slow walk way. Well, we're going to let you do five or 10 this year and maybe 10 next year, 10 drugs and, you know, going on, increasing the number of drugs you, you can negotiate. But that's a positive thing. Uh, and that's going to make, make a difference in people. Capping the $2,000 cap on expenses for is going to make a difference on people uh, to people. And they will they will understand that. And people in Joe Banchin state will understand that, you know, people who are dependent on Medicare and uh, pay for prescription drugs. We'll understand those yeah. those things, and that that could be a political help. Uh, but you know, it's also this uh, that saving the uh, Obamacare and the ADA with more subsidies to health insurance companies. You know, these are this is really the the, the problematic of the American healthcare system. You know, where they're filling cups of water when we need a fire hose, and you know, they're they're yeah. they're reforms at the edges that are necessary, but they keep. The fact that why should people pay $2,000 for prescription drugs a year when everybody else in the developed world, you know, gets it for 10 or 100 maybe a That's year. That's right. It's This is disgraceful. And this is just propping up a bad healthcare system in general. So it's a complicated thing. I don't see where the immediate political effect is going to be. The real politics are going to be in the fight over the vote, as you say. Oh, yeah. Are they, will they be able to get the get this passed? Will they use the parliamentarian or will they get the 50, you know, the, the exemption for the from the – 
uh, from the filibuster. But even in doing that, Manchin, uh, Biden and the Democrats are demonstrating their weakness. Are they really? Are they really? Helpless in the face of the parliamentarian and in the face of the filibuster. <laughs> that's a political debate that not necessarily going to help them either. Yeah, yeah, that that's right. And and it's funny that the parliamentarian will make his decision and the Democrats just throw up their hands. I've seen this repeatedly over the years. They just throw up their hands. They walk away. Uh, but one of the things that puzzles me, I wanted to ask you about this. When I was reading the article last night, you know, breaking news, uh, they've come to this agreement. The The reason that Manchin opposed this bill, he said in the first place, was that it would worsen inflation. Well, the bill hasn't changed. So now he says, or last night he said, that it would help reduce inflation. What in the world is he talking about? Well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And I, the, 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 one of the main things I want to say about this whole thing, you know, I'm a guy who's come to understand modern monetary theory. Mm-hmm. And this idea, this this whole negotiation, we got to divorce the deficit. We can't do anything. Where are you going to pay? How are you going to pay for it? You got to raise taxes to pay for things. These taxes aren't paying for anything. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this is this demonstrates this again. You know, whether inflation is going to uh, is going to increase or not depends on a lot of other things. And not necessarily on what how much the government spends, but on what they spend it on and where it goes to and where the supplies are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this whole negotiation over how you're going to pay for it and we can't we can't increase the deficit and we've got to reduce the deficit is phony. And yeah. as long as we're in it, we're never going to win. But it's true in a sense that, you know, just on the face of it, you know, the private health insurance companies, the private medical associations I- industry doesn't want to reduce prices. <laughs> the only way prices are going to reduce is if you control the prices. And that's what a single payer system would do. That's right. So what you're doing here now is doing things, what, what people have to spend, as opposed to what the government spends, you know, reducing government expenditures doesn't reduce expenditures for people. Yes. If the government's not paying for the, for the drugs, you are. And those prices are still going to go up. So you, the, 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 the problem of inflation and of deficits is, you know, the whole framework under which they're doing this is, is phony. And this, as you say... This shift, oh, last yesterday this was good. This was bad for inflation and deficits. Today it's okay. It goes the same thing. There's a fight about something else going on. And it's about protecting the private health insurance industry, and it's about not taxing the wealthy. Not because we need their taxes, because to pay for anything, because we don't want to tax the wealthy. And uh, so that's what's going on here. And this abrupt shift, which doesn't have the quote unquote ec- economic explanation. It seemed to have a day, you know, the day before demonstrates how there's something phony about the problematic of that. Yeah. Oh, totally agree. Um, I suspect that we're going to see some hardball politics on this thing uh, in the coming weeks. But the, the final the final decision rests with the Senate parliamentarian, crazy as it sounds. Uh, do you think. This bill has a chance of passing it, it. Let's say the parliamentarian approves of attaching it to the to the budget process. Is this going to be one of those 51 to 50 votes with Kamala Harris you know, casting the decider? I think it'll be more than 51 to 50, but I think it'll be close. And, and, and they, they probably wouldn't be able to do it without, yeah. you know, overcoming the filibuster via the parliamentarian rather than just getting rid of the damn filibuster, which is what they should do. But. Uh, it's going to be. They, they both want the politi- Both parties want this political fight over. 
because the, the Republicans are going to fight as fiscal conservatives and we're saving yeah. you from the deficit and the debt. And the Democrats are going to fight and we're going to pay for your medications. OK, so this creates the 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 kind of political battle they they both want to be in. And it's a little unclear, given this, given the medication and the Medicare part of it, you know, who's going to get the political value out of the political gain out of that. Uh, but I think they both want that fight. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the shame is that the, the Democrats won't just end the damn filibuster, which, mm -hmm. excuse me, which they should do. And uh, they should have done a long time ago. This is ridiculous. I never heard of the parliamentarian until about two years ago. <laughs> I mean, suddenly the parliamentarian controls the whole Congress. <laughs> and, you know, this this is all nonsense. You know, they can get rid of this if they wanted to, but they don't because it sets up these battles over things that that are framed in a, in a, in a specious way, but create a lot of heat and a lot of passion and they will fight each other over it and they can split the country over it and see who, who, who wins that battle. Yeah. I I've got to ask you too, about Joe Manchin's uh, motivation. Uh, it seems to me, I mean, this, this guy is Mr. Cole in the, in the Senate and this bill is decidedly anti Cole. So he just said a couple of weeks ago that he was opposed to it. It was bad for the country. It was bad for energy. It was bad for West Virginia. It's essentially the same bill today as it was two weeks ago. Um, so why the change? And and how does he explain this flip flop to his constituents in West Virginia who are not the country's biggest supporters of climate change legislation? Well, you know, he's not saving coal. I mean, you know, He's this not. is where you can't save coal. <laughs> I mean, or you can save coal because if we run out of gas, because we can't get gas supply, not in the United States, but other countries are going to have to increase their use of coal because of uh, the sanctions under Russian gas. But, you know, this is really just, you know, uh, corruption at the highest level. I mean, he is personally being paid by the coal industry. His wife is paid by the coal industry. So they're going to put forward a line that's going to protect what they, you know, certain coal operators in, in the state. But, you know, they really aren't, they can't save coal. This is not what it's really about. It's about more nasty minable in French, uh, you know, uh, uh, petty corruption of a certain kind, I think. And yeah. so there's no explanation for it that's rational. But he, on the other hand, you know, this isn't going to do anything worse for the coal industry either. It isn't really going to end coal. Nothing in this bill is going to do anything bad to the coal industry than the actual development of the economy and the social economy and the technology is doing already. Coal hasn't been destroyed by climate legislation, mm -hmm. and it's not going to be. It's going to be destroyed by other things. Yeah. So, And he knows that. And so, you know, the question of whether he can how you can sell this stuff to your to your constituents and how you can sell these changes to your constituents, you know, how can Joe Biden sell, you know, uh, defund the police to we need 100,000 more cops. Right. All the progressives in Congress. I mean, they sell it because the media, those are their the, the partisan affiliated media goes along with these things and creates an, a scenario and creates a, a framework that people can't get out of. It's it's. You know, we've we're in, a, we're in a process for at least two years where things have been sold to the American people that have make no sense, but they got along with it. And that's one of the most frustrating things about American politics is that people get sold a bill of goods again and again and again. And they believe these yeah. changes 
and they don't notice, oh, this guy said X today, and he's saying negative X tomorrow. Yeah, and exactly. And why, what, do we have, what do we think about that? Jim, the Biden administration, I want to switch gears here. The Biden administration has been dangling the idea of a prisoner swap with the Russians for at least two weeks now. Uh, the, the Justice Department, as a matter of policy, opposes prisoner swaps. But the State Department wants to get this thing done. Paul Whelan has been in a Russian prison for four, four years now. Brittany Griner's case is in the news pretty much every day. Victor Boot, though, is a very high-profile prisoner. His name is the Merchant of Death. And when I was at the CIA, I mean, they were searching for this guy all over the world. And certainly the FBI had been looking uh, for him. He's currently incarcerated in the same unit at Supermax Marion as whistleblowers Daniel Hale and Marty Gottesfeld. It seems to me that such a trade could open Biden up to accusations of weakness. Um, And then CNN is reporting today that Biden is increasingly frustrated because the Russians haven't responded to any of this. So what do you think, first of all, is this a trade worth making? And is it a plus or a minus for Joe Biden? Well, yeah, I'd like to see uh, Brittany Garner get out of this. Yeah, me too. I mean, she's she's a pawn in this game. And, you know, she did something that was probably stupid, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I told my son, don't go right around Texas with pot in your car. And he did. Oh. <laughs> oh. That, was, that was a long time ago. So, you know, uh, but so, you know, whatever. I'd like to see the trade being made for her sake. And I don't care about any, really anybody else in it so much. I suspect that Whalen is CIA intelligence. I don't know what your thoughts on that, but I suspect that that's why, you know, and, and that is why the Republicans won't argue about it too much, as they did, didn't before when there was a deal made with, with, uh, with for a That's a good squad. point. Yeah, that's because, a good point. You know, they're getting someone they know is an American asset that they have to, they should be protecting. They mm-hmm. have an obligation to try and get them out. So the rest of it, you know, Victor, yeah, wasn't there a movie made about Bout uh, or based on him? Uh, uh, Boot, uh, yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jared Leto, uh, yeah, they, they were running guns to Africa in these old Soviet cargo planes. Yeah, yes, yeah. So anyway, yeah, he's a nasty character, and I have no sympathy for him. But you know, he, he's part of a game that's there are many other nasty characters like him who aren't being who aren't in jail, yes, not being imprisoned by the Americans. So I hope the thing goes through for Brittany Guy to stay. I suspect if it does, the Republicans aren't going to make a big deal out of it. Some of the more rabid ones might uh, uh, more Russophobic, but, you know, I suspect they know that Whalen is intelligence asset of the United States and we should get him out if we want, if we if we can. Mm -hmm. So I think that will go down uh, if it does. You know, I know why the the Justice Department has to complain about this. And in principle, they're right. Prisoner swaps are a bad idea, but happen all the time. You know, it's like hostage negotiations, a bad idea, but you got to do it. So. you know, these are uh, uh, this is something I don't see this being a big becoming a big issue that's going to help or hurt. I mean, mm-hmm. it will help Biden in the sense that Griner is a is the public figure that everybody's going to like to see her getting out. And it can only be a plus in that respect. I don't think he would be hurt by it at all. Excellent. We've been hearing more and more over the past several days about the Justice Department's criminal investigation into Donald Trump and his actions on January 6th. We learned yesterday that a federal grand jury has been impaneled. 
Are we looking, do you think, at an honest-to-God criminal case against a former president? It certainly seems serious enough, and the investigation is wide-ranging. What do you think? Well, I think they want you to think that you are. Yeah. (laughs) And I I think that that they're going to imply that as long as they can. You know, this is I'm I'm of two minds on this. I I believe that Donald Trump has committed multiple crimes Uh, at the same time to prosecute a former president who who's, you know, beloved by 45 percent of the country. uh, I I think maybe Joe Biden needs to consider what uh, Gerald Ford did with Richard Nixon in 1975 and uh, seriously consider a pardon. I'm not looking at the at the legal ins and outs of this, but when when you've got a former president who's beloved by 45 percent of the country, 50 percent of the country, maybe maybe for the sake of, uh, you know, peace for all, uh, Joe Biden needs to think about what Gerald Ford did for Richard Nixon and consider a pardon. Can't consider a pardon unless he's been convicted of something. Well, no, 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 because Nixon was never convicted of anything. Oh, that's right. You're right. But you have to to, pardon him. To to accept the pardon, you have to admit guilt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and he may not he may not be willing to admit guilt. No, 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 no. It's it's not going that way. Look, if if there's first of all, the very fact of the idea that there is a grand jury that might be uh, uh, investigating a criminal might bring a criminal charge against Trump is going to enrage his supporters. If a criminal charge is brought against Trump, I mean, it's going to be, it's the best thing that they could do for Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, you know, Donald Trump as a political presence in, in, in American politics depends on things like this, you know, and it's a, it's, I, I'm sorry, but I don't see any case for it. You know, he made a speech, go peacefully demonstrate, he riled people up and they went yeah. and did stuff that's happened to all around the country for decades, especially among anti-war leftist politicians and black liberation politicians, you know, he couldn't even, according to their own testimony, he couldn't even get his driver to go where he wanted to go. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, uh, so, so I, 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 it, it, I think it's really a, what's going on with this January 6th investigation is dangerous for the country. In a, in a lot of ways, it's criminalizing things that shouldn't be criminalized and going there. Yeah. It, in a very nasty and very aggressive way against things that are ultimately trivial misdemeanors at right. the best. So what are they going to bring against Donald Trump? But the whole pro- again, this is what they want. They want to they want to fan these flames. They want to make Donald Trump into a you know the Democrats want to make Donald Trump into a fascist threat that they have to go after and throw in jail for the rest of his life and get him out of politics. And that only says we're afraid of him. We're afraid of him politically. Mm-hmm. And you know, he, as a person, you know, who's, the more he speaks, I, I, you know, I don't know. I just don't think he could be a very, he's going to be a very effective candidate for himself, but he has been, I don't know. But, uh, you know, the best thing he can do for him is feed the, feed the flames yep. uh, and, uh, he'll become a martyr instantly. And, uh, even with charges and that's going to, that will become the issue. And that's what both sides want. That's what Donald Trump wants. And, and what the Democrats want. Yes. The Democrats who are spending 30, 40 million dollars over the past few weeks to support Trump Republicans. Yes. Primaries. Yes, that's right. So that's, that's right. what they're doing here. They're, they're building up Trump as the great threat. Yeah, I think you're right. Some political pundits are speculating that a criminal case against Trump 
could cause him to announce his candidacy for president sooner rather than later. And Roger Stone uh, said, uh, what, a week ago that Trump could announce his candidacy in the next week before the end of the month. Do you think that Trump's legal problems will have any impact on his political decisions? The, the RNC is practically begging him not to announce his candidacy until after the midterm elections. And I don't think he cares what the RNC wants. What do you think? Exactly. I think uh, they, 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 as I'm saying, part of the point of this is to get him to run again Yeah, <laughs> uh, and, and to get him to, to take the most radical positions he can. Uh, and so, you know, uh, would be better for the for the Republicans if he didn't, and it might very well uh, any kind of criminal charge against him might very well or any kind of serious suspicion that that's coming might very well uh, in, in provoke him to call this run sooner to announce his candidate candidacy sooner, and uh, you know that's what everybody wants here. That's mm-hmm. they want to have that political framework and that political contest. Yeah. And and uh, it's terrible for the country in every in every way. And as I say, they're working hard to do it. They spent 30, 40 million dollars to try and get Trumpers nominated. Yeah. Uh, and so that's in some sense what's going on behind all this, which could seriously backfire. We we yeah. mentioned a couple. <laughs> uh, terrible. Can you imagine yes. if Doug Mastriano, for example, gets elected governor of Pennsylvania? You know, this is what the Democrats do. They say, oh, let's let's surreptitiously help this guy because he's so nutty. He's, he would be the weakest candidate. And then the guy ends up winning. You know, they they knew they knew before the primaries were held two and a half, three years ago that Marjorie Taylor Greene was going to was going to win that primary. But they thought she was so crazy with her support of QAnon that in a general election, it would make a, a reliably red uh, district uh, competitive for a Democrat. And it didn't. She got 75 percent. So bad politics. They're not confronting the fact that they don't have an offer. No, they have nothing on offer. The the the, the look at the, the the woman who won the, the Latino woman who won in in Texas, South Florida, in an 85 percent Latino uh, district in the second highest Latino district in the United States. Yeah, that went fifth, oh, like fifth plus fifteen for Biden. Yeah, she, and she she the Republican who beat you know this is the Democrats think that all they have to do to win is to create monsters that they fight against. But people are not just looking at that and they want to know what you're giving me and they're not giving you anything. So the monsters, at least, oh, this guy talks tough and this guy, you know, tells it like it is or whatever, you know, and that's that's what you got. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Uh, Jim, I wanted to ask you finally um, about uh, this speech that Donald Trump gave at the America First Policy Institute yesterday. Uh, everybody knew he was going to give this speech. It was going to be a big, a big policy address. They were even calling it uh, State of the Union 5.0. But I think everybody was surprised at the content of this speech. He called for much wider use of the death penalty in federal cases, much tougher federal sentences for, for drug crimes. Do you think this is a wise lead campaign campaign plank? Is this really what what voters want from a Republican nominee? And I, I don't think that helps. I, I think there's a small section of supporters who might who might be mm-hmm. energized by that. But I think most people aren't really people don't want death penalty all over. They don't want 20, 30 year sentence for drug trial. That's yeah. we were, 
In fact, the Republicans have Biden to blame that on. You know, yeah. I mean, the drug. This is one of the charges against Biden, the crime bill, and this is this is the kind of thing that Trump. You know, Trump won. If you know, his appeal in 2016 was they sent those jobs away. Mm-hmm. They don't care about you. They don't care about you. They're a liberal elite that's out there, you know, making rules for everybody, and they don't really know what's going on in your life. This is not we have to put everybody in jail forever, or we have to kill everybody who, you know, crosses the street. This is this is Biden from the uh, the Central Park Five days. You yeah, know, he took out that newspaper advertisement um, saying they should be a death penalty. Right. So this is, you know, this is not something that really resonates that much with people anyway. There's a certain segment of it. And there's a segment, it's a little bit different from the the defund the police and we're afraid of crime. They don't people don't want to be hassled in the street. They don't want to be afraid of being knifed on the subway. But they don't want everybody who smokes smokes a joint to go to jail for 10 years. Right. And they know people, you know, they don't want everybody who's involved with meth and with opioids. I mean everybody understands these are these are social and psychological and political problems. The cops and the jails are not necessarily are, are not uh, a good answer to. Yeah. And more and more people understand that. And everybody understands there's been a lot of people who are convicted uh, on confessions that are mm-hmm. innocent mm-hmm. and can be, you know, put to death. And that's not a good thing. Yeah. You hear about that every day. Well, thank you, Jim Cavanaugh. Jim is the editor of the polemicist.net. You can go there to find more of his work. In the meantime, you're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take another short break and come back with our next guest. Stay tuned. on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou. We told our listeners yesterday about a terrible case in the state of Indiana. A group of at least 20 female prisoners from the Clark County Jail filed a federal lawsuit alleging that they were subjected to a night of terror when a jail guard sold access to the female wing of the prison to male prisoners who proceeded to rape, molest, and abuse the women. The guards sold access to the wing for $1,000 per person. One woman became pregnant from the rape, and several have had to go um, to psychiatric treatment. Shockingly, this occurred on the night of October 23rd, 2021. It was only reported when one of the women was finally transferred to a different prison. When she got there, she told her, her attorney, who filed the civil case. No criminal charges have been filed against the guard, at least not yet. No criminal charges have been filed against the male prisoners or against anybody else. Is this an outlier? Is this a one-off? Or does this kind of thing happen with more frequency than Americans realize? We're joined by Paul Wright. Paul is the executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center and the editor and publisher of Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News magazines, Always great to have you, Paul. Thanks for joining us. Paul, let's get right to this question. Uh, Is this an outlier? How could something like this happen? And just as importantly, how could it have remained unknown for almost a year? 
Just to correct you, earlier you said that no one had been charged, but actually um, in the December issue of Prison Legal, this is actually the December 2021 issue, we reported that the guard who gave access to um, to the prisoners, David Lowe, who's 29, oh. was in fact fired and he was arrested Good. on October 24th, 2021. So Good. he has been arrested and, he, um, and right now he's facing... Uh, a level six felony charge of official misconduct and a misdemeanor charge of trafficking with an inmate. And he's being, and he's um, awaiting trial. His trial is supposed to happen in uh, September of this year. Good. So, so, so he has been charged. Um, but as far as the prevalence of it, uh, unfortunately, this is, you know, all too common. And one of the things that's kind of bad about having um, reported on prisons and jails as long as I have is, this is more like, okay, this is just the next installment of a long, bad chapter. And, you know, we've reported on everything from, you know, prisoners being trafficked and sexually abused in federal jails in New York City um, and state prisons around the country. In, in Michigan, for example, um, in uh, Michigan, for example, a couple of years ago, the state of Michigan paid $100 million, mm-hmm. literally dozens of women who were systematically raped and sexually assaulted by staff there over a multi-year period. Um, right here on the show, we've discussed uh, the ongoing um, sexual assaults of prisoners at the federal prison in uh, Dublin, California. So unfortunately, this is, um, you know, this, this is very common. And, and I'd say the, the, big pro- the big issue isn't so much how common it is, but just kind of the monotonous regularity um, with which these stories kind of erupt into the public consciousness. And the only reason that they do is generally because of, you know, some type of litigation. Either um, criminal charges are filed against the guards who perpetrated or allow it to occur, or um, civil suits are filed by the victims of these sexual assaults against either the guards or the prisons mm-hmm. and the jails that employ them. And and again, like like I say, this is something that in prison legal news, almost every issue, yeah. we have at least one or two stories like this, and we have for decades. It's not like oh, it's getting better, it's getting worse. It's like, no, it's been, you know, it's been a steady, monotonous um, drumbeat of rape and sexual assault. Paul, you said in an editorial in Prison Legal News um, in October of 21, the same month that these rapes took place, that rapes of prisoners number in the thousands every year, and they're usually committed by prison guards and staff. Wasn't the Prison Rape Elimination Act supposed to stop all that? Why do these rapes seem to continue unabated? Are there are there no real protections for prisoners? No, there aren't. And I think that's one of the problems is that, you know, um, you know, when when the Prison Rape Elimination Act kind of started, um, it was it started out originally as the Prison Rape Reduction Act. And then someone in Congress said, well, rather than reducing rape, why don't we try to stop it? And and that's That's a noble intention, but I think that the bigger problem is that um, there's nothing about the Prison Rape Elimination Act that actually does anything to stop or halt rapes. Basically, it's a data collection act, and Uh. a very flawed data collection act, because it relies on the very prison and jail officials to self-report the sexual assaults or the abuses that occur in their prison systems and jails, and there's no downside. to them for it, except, of course, you know, the theory is that, well, they can be publicly shamed or mm-hmm. whatever um, to be known as the prison rape capital of America, which 
Um, that was the title bestowed upon the Texas Department of Corrections a number of years ago. And when they asked the director how he felt about that, his response was, I think it's just because we're the only ones that are being honest about the data and reporting the number of rapes that are actually happening. Um, so those are, those are a lot of the problems with it. And I think it's critical to note that the Prison Rape Elimination Act, it doesn't give the victims of sexual assault, it doesn't give them any rights, it doesn't give them any uh, private causes of action. And the reality is that prison officials and, um, and employees who rape prisoners, they have a lot of protections from lawsuits, including uh, the Prison Rape Elimination, excuse me, the Prison Litigation Reform Act, mm-hmm. one of them. That makes it very difficult for prisoners to sue. And then the other thing is that most of the criminal charges, when the sexual assaults are carried out by um, guards and staff, the sexual, those assaults are de facto criminal. Prisoners cannot consent to have sex with staff. So it's, it's right. a crime across the country. All 50 states uh, make that illegal. But the problem is that generally they're being prosecuted as misdemeanors. And there's they're very low penalties, and if at all. And to say that these crimes are investigated in a very lackluster manner is an understatement. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, in 2001, uh, which now is 21 years ago, Human Rights Watch estimated that at least 4.3 million prisoners had been raped in prisons and jails in the United States over the course of, you know, the existence of the country. That's a cumulative number. They also found, and to me this is even more troubling, 4% of all federal and state prisoners reported being raped, as did 3.2% of all local prisoners they reported being raped. Now, these are the ones who actually went to the trouble of reporting it. Have those numbers improved at all in the last 20 years? Well, you know, it's hard to say. I think that, that a big part of the problem is that, um, you know, a big part of the problem has been, you know, getting the data. And that was what the Prison Rape Elimination Act was supposed to remedy. And based on the PLRA, anywhere between, um, you know, the reporting that we get, um, it's a minimum of 8,000 reported sexual assaults. And, and remember, these are reported and confirmed, um, you know, by prison officials who aren't exactly known for their diligence in investigating claims of prison abuse. And so one of the things that we've seen um, is, for example, you know, I read these statistics. The prison systems will have a thing where, okay, we got 3,000 complaints to prisoners being sexually assaulted. We investigated and substantiated 12 of them. And and this is very similar to, like, the numbers you see when it comes to, um, in the police context, where citizens complain about improper conduct by um, by police officers, where citizens will file thousands or tens of thousands of complaints and internal affairs as they investigate stuff and and they substantiate you know single digits or or double digits of uh, you know of the complaints. Mm-hmm. So it's hard it's hard to say. One thing I will say though, in terms of what you can say about the exact numbers, uh, whether it's you know five thousand or fifty thousand. A year, it's grossly underreported, and one of the things that I think really makes sexual assault um, behind bars a lot different than sexual assault behind, uh, outside of prison is that number one, the primary victims in terms of numbers of sexual assaults that happen in prison are men; it's not women. That's right. And 
uh, and for years, the Human Rights Defense Center and other organizations have tried to get the FBI to change how they um, calculate and estimate sexual assaults, because they included people behind bars, the prisoners that are sexually assaulted and raped. The rape statistics in this country would dramatically change mm-hmm. their prevalence. And it would also change in that men would most likely be the primary victims of sexual assault rather than women. And that's something that the FBI um, has resisted. The other thing that really makes uh, sexual assaults or rapes behind bars a lot different is that typically when someone outside of prison, uh, male or female, whenever they're raped or sexually assaulted, um, except for cases of children, but generally in the case of adult, it's a one-off. Yeah. You get sexually assaulted, it happens once, and that's it. Either you know they report it to the police and something happens, or they remove themselves from the situation, but it's a one-off. Whereas um, when people are sexually assaulted behind bars, whether it's by staff or by other prisoners, it tends to be a repetitious thing. In other words, guards don't just rape prisoners like once and they're done with it. It is No, it becomes a regular occurrence. It happens multiple times. And the same thing when prisoners are raped or sexually assaulted um, behind bars by other prisoners. In other words, it doesn't just happen once. Right. It becomes a regular occurrence. So you have one person who will be raped multiple times. And this is what makes sexual assault or rape behind bars uh, such a devastating experience and, and such a terrible crime is because literally the victims can't get away. They don't have any place to go. And, you know, and, and this is one of the things that we've also seen, too, the retaliation that happens to sexual assault victims behind bars. They complain about being raped. They complain about being sexually assaulted. And the prison is, the prisoner or jail response is to put them in segregation. They put them in solitary confinement, um, you know, for having complained. And we've seen plenty of cases where prisoners have complained about being sexually assaulted by guards. They're placed in segregation. And then the guards show up in the segregation. You have to keep raping them some more. And, you know, this is uh, – and unfortunately, these are things that happen with monotonous regularity, and it's not confined to any one place or any one state. From California and New York, from Florida to Alaska, this is happening all the time every day in American prisons and jails. It is. It's happening all the time. How frequently uh, do you think uh, these cases are prosecuted? Uh, do you have a sense of that? Uh, and what generally happens to the perpetrators when they're prosecuted? You know, that's one of the things that is kind of amazing about about this phenomenon is because typically when, when everyone hears about sex offenders and people being raped, uh, prosecutors are generally pretty pretty harsh on sex offenders. Uh, they, they prosecute the cases vigorously and seek harsh sentences, except for when the victim is a prisoner and except for when the perpetrator or the rapist is employed by the government and is doing it as part of their government job. This is when we see uh, very lenient plea bargains. We see lackluster prosecutions. We also see very light sentences. Um, with you know, so many of these, cra- with these crimes basically being plea bargained down extensively, um, or even not prosecuted. Um, we've reported on a lot of cases where um, the prisons will start investigating guards for sexually assaulting sexually assaulting prisoners, saying they're going to do an investigation and forward the results to prosecutors, but then the guards resign or they quit. And then the prison system halts the investigation, saying, well, we can't investigate them because they're a former employee, mm-hmm. the authority to do that. And then they don't refer it to the police. And 
I think there's a lot of this is also how, how it happens, too, is that prisoners don't have access to law enforcement officials to report crimes um, that happen within, within the prison. So it's not as if, and I think this is one of the differences, is someone's murdered inside a prison, typically uh, prison officials will immediately call the, the police, the local police department. If it's a federal prison, they'll call the FBI, and it's processed as a crime scene. It's processed as if it were a crime anywhere else, including outside of prison. When someone gets raped in prison, uh, especially by staff, the the prison officials aren't immediately calling up the police and saying, you know, hey, uh, send your uh, sexual assault detectives over to the prison. We, we've got, we, we have a, a we have a rape case going on here. Mm-hmm. Instead, prison officials dork around with it. They investigate it. In a lot of cases, they bury the case. Um, and there isn't that access. It isn't treated as a crime. And and I think this is part of the things that make sexual assault behind bars both so pervasive and the high levels of impunity that go with it is that it's not treated as a real crime by right. officials. And and that's this is especially the case with in the case of jail prisoners because all too often the jails also house the police department or the right. department isn't that far away and typically most jails in this country not all of them but probably around ninety eight percent of them are run by the sheriff's department of each county that's right and so it's not like the jail doesn't have detectives and investigators at their beck and call they do they're usually in the same building or down the hall and and I, I think that just the fact how this stuff is treated. I think shows, I think the overall, um, you know, the lack of seriousness with that, that these crimes, which is what they are, um, are, are given. Uh, one of the things I've come to believe over the decades of, of observing this and, and reporting on it in prison legal news and other venues is that I think that prison rape is an integral part of modern American prison and jail management. Mm-hmm. I draw this conclusion by the fact that there is no way this could be as prevalent and widespread as it is and continuing decade after decade after yeah. decade if the people running the facilities were tacitly approving of it. I think you're absolutely right. And that says a lot about the kind of culture that we live in. You said something a few minutes ago, too, that I wanted to to echo. Uh, it's very difficult to report something like this uh, because of the uh, the legal barriers that have been set up. To reporting crimes in prison. You can't just report a crime. You have to go through this paperwork process that oftentimes takes as long as a year. You have to, at least in the federal system, you have to fill out a form BP eight and a half. And that goes to uh, the, uh, the head of your unit. I was raped, you say. And then he'll say, uh, no, you weren't. And then you do a BP nine that goes to the warden. And he sides with the rapist. Then you fill out a BP-10, which goes to the uh, regional uh, director of the Bureau of Prisons. He sides with the warden. Then you do a BP-11, which goes to the BOP headquarters in Washington. And once you do all of those things, which takes 12 to 18 months, then you can go to the courts. And almost nobody makes it to the courts. Now, one of the things that they do, again, at least in the federal system, is if there's something to your complaint, they'll transfer you to another prison. And if they transfer you to another prison, then you go back to the beginning again, starting with the BP eight and a half. 
So to stop you from reporting a crime that's been committed against you, all they do is just transfer you from prison to prison to prison. They put you in what's called transportation mode. And they just transfer you all around the country until your sentence is done. And there's literally nothing you can do to protect yourself or to save yourself. I think a great deal of this is done to silence uh, people from complaining about being abused and raped and otherwise uh, being victimized by misconduct. I also think it's, it's interesting. To, it's worth noting that when it comes to the grievance system, as you know, it's a lengthy uh, bureaucratic process. But one of the things that American prison officials have perfected is the art of passing the bureaucratic buck, so literally yeah. the buck never stops. That's right. It never stops with anyone. No one is held responsible. No one is held accountable. And what's been unusual about the sexual assaults that we've reported happening at the federal prison in uh, Dublin, California, is that, you know, they've actually, you know, they fired the warden, but then the warden himself is being charged with raping the prisoners. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have these sexual assaults occurring at the highest management levels of the facility— and if you believe that, you know, people should lead by example, you know, what kind of example does this set? Or, you know, what kind of example is this is this giving um, the staff? The other thing that's also a huge conflict of interest is the fact that the prison officials ruling on these grievances by exhausting or allowing prisoners to finish or terminate the grievance process or ruling in the prisoner's favor on grievances also opens the agency up to financial liability. So they have literally a financial disincentive to do anything during the administrative grievance process. And I was at a conference once, and uh, the Bureau of Prisons Regional Council um, was there, and he was talking about how part of his job was to review prisoner grievances. And and I asked him, as you know, one of the people in the peanut gallery during the Q&A, I asked them, you know, as agency counsel, are you ever going to rule in favor of a prisoner in a grievance um, if it might subject the DOP to liability? Never. Of course not. Why would I do that? Yeah, of course. You're a lawyer. And that's exactly part of the problem. That's exactly part of the problem. You follow these issues very, very closely. Um, And one of the things that I enjoy so much about prison legal news is the news in brief sections at the at the back of the magazine. Um, And you talk about these individual uh, cases, individual news events that that happen that concern prison guards and wardens and and people like that. Uh, You've covered a case. uh, It's a the chief of a small town in Pennsylvania, the police chief named Brent Getz. He's the, he was the chief of Weisport, uh, Pennsylvania. It's a town of 400 people. Uh, he was convicted recently for raping a child hundreds of times while this little girl was between the ages of four and 11 raped her hundreds of times. He was finally convicted of rape and sexual abuse. He was arrested in 2019. He finally was convicted last week. And um, he is, uh, is he awaiting sentence? No, he was just sentenced, 32 years in prison. How unusual is this kind of thing? How unusual is it for prison guards not even to be raping the prisoners, but their, their sexual predators who happen to also be prison guards, and they're bringing that mentality into the into the job with them. I think, unfortunately, 
actually, it's it's fairly common. Um, as you know, uh, the reason we we have a news and brief section, which um, for prison legal news and criminal legal news, what it is, it's about stuff that um, either it's just um, stuff that's interesting. Readers and the yeah. public need to know about it. But um, but to just to use the the subject of, of prison rape in that, if if we reported every instance of prisoners and police officers and law enforcement officials committing sex crimes and sexual assaults, we could publish probably a 50-page monthly magazine with nothing but <laughs> just yeah. call like law enforcement rape news. That's how prevalent it is. Now, oh my God. I think I think that you know, um, you know, being fair about it, I would say that you know, there's at least a million people employed by prisons and jails. Um, being employed by prisons and jails, there's probably another uh, million or so employed by the 16,000 uh, police and law enforcement agencies in this country. I and mean, that's the hallmark of a police state is you have so many literally millions of people employed by that police state directly as, you know, uniformed guards, uniformed officers uh, for police departments then throw in, you know, the whole alphabet soup of law enforcement mm-hmm. agencies. Uh, and then there's support staff and clerical staff, and, and you've got a lot of people. So you could say that, you know, hey, if you've got, you know, 2 million people working in law enforcement, a certain percentage of them are going to, um, you know, commit crimes and, and and everything else. So, you know, that may be true. But, but one of the things I often wonder about is, like, with the case of the chief of police, uh, uh, Mr. Getz, that you just mentioned, is to what extent are his crimes enabled? He sexually assaulted this girl for seven years. Mm-hmm. The fact that he was the chief of police allow those sexual assaults to continue much longer than if, let's just say, he'd work right. for the stop, or he'd work for the Department of Transportation, or um, you know, he'd just been a Seven Eleven clerk. And I think that's one of the things. One of the things that's come up over the years that we reported in, in uh, criminal legal news and elsewhere is the high incidence of domestic violence by uh, police officers yes. in particular and law enforcement folks in general. And one of the things that comes up repeatedly about this is when the the domestic partners or intimate intimate partners or spouses of, uh, of police officers and prison guards or whatever that they say is like, hey, Johnny, my husband is beating the crap out of me, and I call up the police. They're all his buddies. They're his coworkers. So they don't do anything. And, and occasionally when this kind of erupts into um, the public eye is when things really get out of control and they kill their partner. At that point, there's a dead body and it's hard to cover up. A, a number of years ago, the police chief of Tacoma, uh, I forgot his name now, but you know we covered it at the time. He, After years of domestically, uh, of physically and sexually abusing his wife, he shot and killed her in a parking lot and then killed himself. Jeez. And that was one of the things that came out was that, wow, he's... You know, he'd been doing this for literally years, if not decades, and the police just covered it up. The very police department that he headed, and I think that's one of the things that that makes crimes by law enforcement officials in this country so difficult. Is there really? It's it's like there's no place to go. Is your you know in cases like that, your husband's the chief of police, mm-hmm. physically abusing you. Who's going to help you? Yeah, who's going to help you? And in the case of you know, again. Uh, you know, you've got a girl being a little girl being abused for seven years by the chief of police. Who is she going to go to? Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that we find in 
you know, we deal a lot with, uh, we sue a lot of jails here at the Human Rights Defense Center. And one of the things that I've really learned in, in the course of doing this is when, especially when you get out to rural America, the sheriffs are really kind of the most powerful official in that county at the county level. Yeah. We, they have the biggest budget. They employ the most people. They have literally the, the biggest source of whether you want to call it patronage or graft or corruption or whatever it is. And the big thing is they don't have any oversight. You know, no one's really overseeing the sheriff in huge swathes of America. Maybe when you're in big cities, it's like, hey, there, you know, there's media, there's more lawyers, there's more avenues to present complaints. But when you're out in, in uh, little towns in America and stuff like that, you really don't have a lot of options. No, uh, there's a book called In Defense of Flogging, uh, written by a professor from John Jay uh, College in New York, a professor of criminal justice. And he says that the Bureau of Prisons is just an employment agency for otherwise unemployable rural white men. And most of them uh, go to the Bureau of Prisons just because they flunked out of the local police academy and uh, left the military and don't have anything else to do. Funny because it's funny you should mention that a number of years ago I was doing a, um, I was on a panel and one of the things came up was um, you know about downsizing our nation's prisons and and one of the people in the the panel said you know my my uh, brother got out of the military he's employed as a prison guard in an up in a, in a prison in downstate Illinois and if he didn't have that job what else could he possibly do and and it's one of those things where it's like, well, I don't know, maybe move to a city where they have jobs, but which is what people have been doing for the last 10,000 years. But I think that's part of the problem is that, you know, you build this police state and how much of it is because there's a need of people and how much of this is being viewed as a jobs program. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And what always struck me as funny was the fact that they they believed that this was uh, owed to them somehow. I I really regret that we're out of time. Um, Paul, thank you for joining us. That was the voice of Paul Wright. Paul is the executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center and the editor and publisher of Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News magazines. They're both outstanding. I subscribe to both, and I would urge you to take a look at them both. You've been listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. That is it for us today. Thanks to our guests, Wyatt Reed, Juan Jose Gutierrez, Jim Cavanaugh, and Paul Wright. Thanks to Ryan, Dimitri, Andre, and the entire Sputnik News team. Thanks again to uh, our very talented producer, Ray. And on behalf of the vacationing, Michelle Witte, thank you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>